0: Acts chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 1 just to give us a bit more context. Let's read together. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. And the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, some of the usual suspects through the Gospels there. John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? They're speaking to the miracle of this man who was crippled and was healed. Then... Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you underline verses in your Bible. If you're using the Pew Bible, please don't. But if you have your own Bible, uh, uh, I would recommend you underline, highlight this verse if you do that. This, This is key to everything we see now. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness showed to a cripple... And are asked how he is healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, that is Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. May that be said of all of us who know and follow him. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, to among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves, whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go, they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more as we come now to God's word. Ask him to bless this time together. Living God, we come now to your word. We ask you. By your spirit to come and speak to each one of our hearts. I believe you've drawn each one of us here for a purpose, and I ask that you would accomplish that purpose in each one of our hearts. You say that each time you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth. Amen. In the uh, primary-aged playground at my daughter's school, there's a special set of monkey bars. Uh, uh, it has a platform really close underneath so that kids, they can learn the, the motion and, and ways of swinging from bar to bar in the monkey bars, but there's a, a platform underneath their feet where they can touch if they need to so they can gain confidence in swinging from bar to bar, learn these motions. And my oldest daughter, Isabella, who's just up here praying, she, she was getting pretty good at this. She was uh, learning the motions well. She was even starting to tuck up her feet and support her whole body weight and just swing from end to end. So I'm like, okay, you're ready. So a couple days later, there, there was a, a park by our old apartments uh, with monkey bars. They were, they were higher. There, there's no supporting platform underneath, but maybe only like a two-foot drop if you were to fall. And yet... Even though it's not that much higher, and listen, the whole time I was standing there supporting her legs, Uh, I was saying, I'm going to be with you, the whole time, she wouldn't let go of the platform and swing out. She wouldn't do it. She she had total confidence to swing and and just head out when the risks were minimal, but when, when she had that platform underneath her, she knew she could put her feet down, but although she knew how to swing, and although I was there with her the whole time, supporting and empowering her to do this, when the risks increased for her, her confidence in her own ability, as well as in my ability to sustain her, just all but vanished, and she wouldn't even try. So, Of course, I mean, I, I, seeing her obvious fear and terror, this new height, I, I did what any loving, caring father would do. I forced her. I forced her to just, I pulled her legs off the platform, so she had to swing out, and I supported her as she cried and screamed the whole way across, and she made it, and of course, afterward, when I tried to hug her and congratulate her, she wasn't very receptive to that, but uh, I don't know, I mean, after that, she was able to swing at this, this higher, you know, monkey bar, so I, I i put that in the win category as a parent. That's a win. We are continuing today this series th- through the book of Acts. We began a few weeks ago, Pioneer Church. If you're unfamiliar with Acts, uh, uh, maybe if you haven't just been with us these past few weeks, so far, the empowered witness, the spirit-empowered witness of the apostles post-Pentecost has been massively successful. They've been doing great. It's, just, it's like Disneyland, Midas touch. Everything they touch is gold. They're just preaching and teaching the gospel everywhere. Men and women getting saved all over the place, hearing the gospel, getting baptized. They're they're empowered to do all these miraculous signs that are supporting their witness. And God, it says, is adding daily to their number being saved. It's it's incredible. And yet, as we're going to see today in our passage, all of a sudden, the winds are going to change. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem, who maybe you already know were not super big fans of Jesus, well, they are going to come in on Peter and John. They're going to come down on the mid-sermon and start to turn up the heat underneath them. As the floor drops out from underneath these proverbial monkey bars for Peter and John, all of a sudden they find themselves put in jail, standing before the Sanhedrin, which is basically like the Supreme Court of their day. And they're faced with a fearful challenge now of witnessing for Jesus in a very different context than before. Now a context where the the audience is very hostile to their message. It's not welcoming and accepting at all, like it was before. And the question that they need to answer for themselves in this moment is, if I swing out onto these monkey bars at this much higher altitude, will the Holy Spirit's empowering of my witness still be as strong now? Will it still be as powerful now when the platform is gone, the safety net is gone, and my feet are much higher off the ground, and this audience doesn't feel at all receptive to me? And don't we have to answer this same question ourselves today, as we seek to be witnesses for Jesus in our own context? I mean, we, we talk about Jesus here at church, uh, maybe uh, in In your home groups or, or pods or or even just in a context where you feel like people are going to be generally receptive to a a, a different opinion, we don't mind talking about Jesus at that time because the platform feels pretty close, right we, we We feel pretty confident the spirit's going to empower our witness, and yet, if we're unsure at all about people's response or if we're absolutely sure. The response is not going to be positive, people are not going to be interested or excited at all about this witness for Jesus. It can be much, much harder for us to let go of that platform and swing out and trust that the Spirit's power is still going to empower our witness here. And for many of us, just like my daughter on that day, we're so fearful, we're so unsure about the answer to that question in that moment, we end up just remaining silent. We don't swing out at all. So to to help us, I, I pray this morning to help us build confidence in the Spirit's ability to empower our witness, no matter how high off the ground the monkey bars feel, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. I want to show you the true target of the trial and then our empowered witness in the trial. Okay, The true target in the trial, our empowered witness in the trial. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Acts 4? Follow along with me as we dig into this next part of the story of this pioneer church. So let's begin by looking at the true target of the trial. The true target of the trial. Now if you grew up going to church or you're maybe more familiar with some more obscure parts of the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with a story from the book of Judges about a guy named Samson. People are familiar, do you know this? This guy, he was basically a a Jew, an Israelite, who who had this superhuman power, superhuman strength given to him by God, which essentially made him an undefeatable foe. Uh, All of God's enemies, they weren't able to stop him no matter what they wanted. At this time in history, it was the Philistines. Now, the Bible doesn't say that he turned green and hulked out when he did this powerful stuff, but he certainly had that kind of power and strength. pushing down entire buildings with his bare hands. I mean, he could do incredible things. But what the Bible does say was that the source that God had given him of this incredible strength was his long hair. He had this long hair which he was never allowed to cut. And we don't have time to dig into this, but long story short, Samson marries a woman named Delilah. If you're looking for a biblical name to give your daughters someday, don't choose Delilah. Marries this woman named Delilah who's allied with the Philistines and they, they use her to try to get to Samson to figure out what's the source of his power so they can cut him off and basically kill him. And after a bunch of playing around with his wife, you know, giving her fake news of all kinds of, you know what, if you want to get rid of my, my power, can be taken away if you just tie me with really strong ropes, using chains with kryptonite, whatever it is. He says, you do this and each time it turns out to not be true. But then finally he tells her, The source of my power is my hair. If you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength. Now, this might seem like an obvious point, but do you know when when the Philistines discover the true source of Samson's power, do you know what they don't do? They don't go out and just get even stronger ropes and try to catch him that way, right? No, they they cut off his hair and jump him, right? Because now they've seen what the source of the power is, and so they go directly to the source of where they see his power is. It's what anyone would do. And if you look at verse 2 of our passage here, you'll see this is exactly what the religious leaders are doing. When they see this pioneering movement called the way beginning to gain momentum, they go right for what they see as the source of the power. And we saw again last week, chapter 3, Peter and John have just done this amazing miracle. They've healed this guy that everyone's been seeing at the temple gate, been crippled from birth, 40 years old at least. Everyone knows about this. They're drawing this huge Crowd of people, everyone's excited, fired up about what they're hearing. And when the religious leaders show up here now in verse 2, you know, the fun police come in and they're trying to shut down this party, it looks at least on the surface like what they're doing is they're arresting them, putting them in jail because they're, they're disturbing the peace. Right? They've done this miracle, it's disrupting everything, so they put them in jail. And yet, in the face of all this commotion, uh, all this really free press uh, for the, the disciples, Look at what the Sadducees and the temple guard are actually upset about. Verse 2. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so they don't seem to be talking. They're not talking about healing. They're not talking about public preaching. They're upset that they're preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. Then they throw Peter and John in jail through the night. They drag him before the Sanhedrin the next day, question them about this miracle and all that. But then now look down to verse 18. At the end of this big trial, all these deliberations, uh, everything going on, uh, look again. The single target of the religious leaders' sanctions. They called them in and again commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. You see what they're doing? You see it? Not once are the apostles told, hey, hey, tone down all this public preaching and teaching. Nowhere do we see the religious leaders tell the apostles to cease this healing ministry that they're doing that's bringing all these crowds and disrupting things. No, the sole focus and target of this trial and their attack is on Jesus. Preaching, teaching, healing, whatever. Doing anything in His name. That's the the target of this trial here. Now, I'm not saying that the religious leaders necessarily knew that that was the source of the apostles' power and their teaching and their healing. I'm not saying they necessarily knew that. All accounts here seem to indicate that they were just simply annoyed. They were just annoyed and troubled that this Jesus, this false messiah that they felt they'd already dealt with decisively, he keeps turning up. People are still talking about him everywhere they turn. They're like, what's going on? We need to shut this down. And so in this instance anyway, they don't seem to be concerned about cutting off some kind of power source. They don't know they're doing that. They're just sick of hearing about Jesus and they want to cut off this folk legend about this supposedly raised Messiah right in its tracks. Stop talking about him now. It's like, it's exactly like, remember years ago when the Macarena was this huge song and everybody loved it, but now today... You, you stick around for the dance after the wedding and some DJ puts on that song. What are you like, seriously? We're still playing this song 20 years later? This is not a great song. It's not some classic song. Why are you playing this still? It's, it's, it's annoying now. And then, God help us, we look over at our kids and they're getting into it. They're excited about it. They're like, hey, this is kind of ha-ha-ha. And they're doing the motions. You're like, No. No, we are not doing this again. We're cutting it off. You're looking at the DJ like, stop this song. You're trying to unplug his, his sound equipment, whatever. We, we, just, we don't want it to continue. This is the exact same thing here. Stop talking about Jesus. I'm sick of hearing about him. But unbeknownst to the religious leaders, the true target of their trial, preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, is actually the source of the apostles' power. It's the whole focus of their empowered witness. And so, if they, if they were to obey their sanctions, if they were to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, it'd be the same as Samson cutting off his hair. They would lose the source of their power if they were to actually obey what the religious leaders are telling them. So again, apostles are not told to stop holding church, not, not told to stop healing people. They're told not to... They're, they're, their sole focus and sanction here is stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And I, and I want to highlight that and... Point that out clearly to all of us, because if you didn't know already, this is exactly the same sanction that every secular voice, every secular organization would like to put on us today as Jesus-empowered witnesses in our society today. It's the exact same sanction. You talk about this in, in your, your your faith in a, uh, just a regular context. The average person is going to say, "Oh, you go to church? Oh, that's great! So great that you can be a part of a community like that. It's wonderful. Oh, you believe in God?" Oh, you believe in uh, uh, there's a life after death, existence after death. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, you know, I saw a great TED talk about that. So, so great. But then all of a sudden, it's going to be, oh, wait, you saying you you think Jesus is God, and that the only way to get to God is through Him. Everybody else is is wrong. Well, no, 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 no. Wait, sorry, no, you can't you can't do that anymore. So you're going to need to broaden that view a whole lot more. Widely, in order to include a lot of other folks who might feel differently. Basically, you're going to be told, stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. At least exclusively. This happens in in a thousand different ways. Uh, Today it's going to be uh, quiet societal pressures from friend groups, other parents. All all the way to full-on overt restrictions. You are not to speak about Jesus in this class, in this context, in, in this school, whatever it is. I'll tell you what, if you, if you look historically at the progression of classic liberalism from the 20th century onwards, what, what you're going to see is that their strategy to remain relevant and engaged in culture was to say, okay, sure, okay, listen, you, you don't like all that stuff here, verse 14, Jesus, there's salvation in no one else, you don't like that? Uh, uh, you don't like hearing all this stuff Jesus said about sin and judgment and hell and marriage and him doing all this miraculous stuff? Okay, that, that's fine. You know what? As long as you'll keep coming to our churches and listening to us, we'll we'll downplay all that stuff. You know, we probably won't even bring it up. Do you know what happened? They did downplay it. They did stop talking about it, and people still stopped coming and still stopped listening to them. I remember reading a fascinating article in uh, United Church Observer magazine uh, this this author was truly baffled as to why it is people were still pouring into these conservative churches that were proclaiming this historic exclusionary doctrine, when they, they had an, they had done everything that the culture said they wanted and people weren't coming anymore. They couldn't understand it. What I believed they missed, and what I think we so desperately need to see ourselves and be reminded of, was that when Jesus told his disciples, I remember back in Acts one eight, he said, "You'll receive." Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You Remember what he said the result of that power would be. He didn't just say you'd be witnesses now. He said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. That's what you'll be. We will be his witnesses. And so if you're no longer seeking to be a witness of Jesus, doesn't it stand to reason that you'll also no longer receive the power in order to be his witnesses? So like Peter and John, what I'm saying here is we need to make up our minds before the persecution comes, before the sanctions begin coming down, that we're going to be witnesses for Jesus no matter what comes. We will be witnesses for Him because the true target for the trial in the church today is no different than the trial here that Peter and John are facing. It's not church buildings. It's not committing yourself to some religious organization or set of rules. It's Jesus. It's Jesus speaking and teaching in His name. And if you're not prepared for that pressure ahead of time, you're going to be a thousand times more likely to compromise the exclusivity of your witness to Jesus, which, as we just said, that's that's surrendering the only power our witness actually has. So that's the true target of the trial. I hope you see just how essential it is for our witness that we maintain fidelity to a witness for Jesus alone. I know... It sounds so countercultural today in, in, in a world that's supposedly much more inclusive to say, no, Jesus is the only way. We're only testifying and witnessing to him. And yet, although, yes, the Bible is exclusive about the source of our salvation, it is absolutely inclusive in its application. We talked about that two weeks ago. The promise is available to all without distinction, it's absolutely inclusive. And yet I'm almost positive that for most of us here, we, we look at the witness that then Peter and John give, and we think, well, that's great for you. Great job. You did great. Though. I certainly couldn't do that. And I'm INFP. I'm not going to be standing up in front of people, proclaiming, like accusing people. I, I, I could never be a witness like that. And you know what? In your own strength, you're absolutely right. You couldn't. And yet, what what I want you to think about this morning is that with the empowering of the Spirit that Jesus said we would have when we are willing to faithfully be witnesses for Him, you absolutely can. You can absolutely be a witness for Jesus just like this. So let's look finally here at our empowered witness in the trial. Our empowered witness in the trial. Now, Our family over the years has enjoyed a lot of the stories of uh, children's author Robert Munch. Do you know some of his books? Uh, We've read these all through our lives as a family. And, And one of the stories I remember liking very much was about an ordinary little boy named David who had a father who just so happened to be a massive giant. Now, there's no biblical connection. It's not kind of a David and Goliath thing. It's saying his father was literally this huge giant the size of a house, feet the size of a small car, and a teaspoon the size of a shovel massive father now the the point of the story is different and yet the way it applies to our story here is that because david has this this massive giant father he walks through life with a great deal of, of confidence personal confidence no matter what he faces because he knows he's got this huge power source backing him up whatever he faces the town bullies the angry shopkeeper whatever it is he's like have you seen my dad get out of the way what I'd like you to think about is that if, you are, if you've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a child of God. You too have a power backing you up in your witness no matter what you face in this life. A, a, a power far greater than a, a dad the size of a house. You have the God of the universe who is empowering your witness for Jesus by His Spirit, which ought to also give us a great deal of personal confidence Not to be arrogant, not to walk around with a smug arrogance, but to have a a quiet, assured confidence, no, God is with me. He is empowering me as I seek to to step out, no matter what pressures or intimidation we might face as a witness. And a great picture of what that empowered witness could look like we see right here in our passage. Look with me. Verse 2 and 3. Here here we see Peter and John, they get dragged away mid-sermon, right in the middle of their, their, their preaching to get dragged away, put in prison for the night. Verse 5 and 6 there, we saw how the next day they're brought before the Sanhedrin. Remember, this is like the Supreme Court for the Jews. And then they have all these religious leaders, experts of the law. That's the team over here. And then over here, you got two blue-collar, uh, unschooled, what do they say? Unschooled, common, ordinary fishermen. That's what verse 13 said. That's the other team. I mean, if anyone had reason to be intimidated had reason to be shut down in these circumstances. It's Peter and John, right? And then on top of that, I'd like you to remind you of the fact that Peter in particular, not only was he facing this present intimidating crowd, he was also facing the ghosts of his past. Because you see, uh, if you know the story of Peter, you know the last time he tried to be a witness for Jesus, he'd failed colossally. He'd failed not just once, but three times in one night, and not facing some big council of elders, facing a lowly servant girl. Three times, you must be one of his disciples. No, I don't know who he saw. I don't know who he is. And surely, if left to himself, Peter would have had no hope of, of any different outcome in this witness than the one that he'd had previously. And yet, and yet, the vast. Difference between that past failure and what is about to be an overwhelming success for Peter is one thing and one thing only, and we read about it in verse eight. Look there. Luke tells us, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit." spoke. Filled with the, the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. That's the only difference between the previous one and this one. And what Luke is doing here is he's taking Peter, who sadly is just the the perfect example of what a failed witness looks like, and he's using him as now the perfect canvas on which to paint a contrasting picture of what happens when Acts 1.8 gets played out in real life. This is what an empowered witness looks like. This is what happens when someone receives power from on high, and they're able to witness to the Person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like. And, and just look at Peter go now. Look at him. He's, he's standing before this council. Peter's not dumb. He knows who's in this room. He knows some of these very people in the room are the ones who put Jesus to death. And yet look at him. He's dropping J-bombs all over the place. It's just like Jesus, this, he did that. He's, he's accusing them. He's like, Jesus, that you crucified, the, the, you, you are the builders that rejected him. Like, and then even verse 18, they, they command him explicitly, do not preach any longer in the name of Jesus. And he's just like, sorry, can't do it. Listen, you judge for yourselves whether I should obey you or God, but I, I can't help but speak about what I've seen and heard. You ever tried to teach your child something that they were struggling to do? Uh, taught a student who was struggling with a concept and then just seen, you know that feeling you have when the light comes on, they, all of a sudden they, they get it? You're able to take your hand off the bike seat. They're able to solve that math problem, or hit that jump shot, and you're like, yeah, you're doing it, yes. I swear to you, that's exactly what Jesus and all of heaven were doing when they saw Peter's empowered witness here. Night and day different. Not in his own strength, no. But with the empowerment of the Spirit now, he just absolutely destroys the competition. Totally killing it here. And actually, you know what, this is really only just... It's Jesus fulfilling another promise that he'd already made to his disciples back in Luke 12, verse 11 and 12. Listen to what he says here. I think it's on the screen. Jesus has said this to his disciples. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And here is Jesus now fulfilling this promise to Peter. And John, as they are willing to step out and be witnesses for him. Two key things I think we can take from this in our own witness today, in our own lives. First of all, an empowered witness does not mean expected results. We don't get to anticipate and expect what the results are going to be just because our witness is empowered. What I mean by that is simply, well, we see Peter and John, they're willing to step out, and in this empowered witness, it doesn't bring the results that they might have expected. They're giving the very same testimony, but you notice here the religious leaders, they're not cut to the heart. They're not weeping and repenting. What shall we do? Nothing. They're trying to shut them down. And then on the other side, as you saw back in verse 4, as they're being cuffed and dragged away to prison, 2,000 more men and their families get joined to the church. That's not how it's supposed to work. Nobody sees somebody proclaiming a message, getting arrested for it, and be like, hey, I'd like to join that. That looks good totally unexpected results of what they would have hoped for. So the point is just simply this. Be faithful to witness to Jesus, but don't allow the expectations of results to determine whether or not that that witness is effective. We don't get to determine the results. That's not up to us. God's going to do what He wants to do with our witness. We just need to be faithful to give it, humbly, graciously, that's the only part that we have in this, to be faithful, to give the witness, and then leave the results up to him. He's going to accomplish what he wants to in it. Second thing to remember is an empowered witness is not empowered until it's given. It's not empowered until it's given. My point here is simply this. How many times have you tried to be a witness to Jesus for someone and you felt like you weren't empowered to do it? Anyone in here? We can be honest. This church. You ever felt like that? I want to be a witness for Jesus and I'm not, I'm not being empowered. You know what? I've had this happen countless times to me. Uh, somebody's saying some kind of derogatory joke, down, talking down about Christianity, or they ask me some really hard, uh, accusing kind of question about Christianity, and I'm waiting for the empowering to come, and, and, and nothing. Nothing happens. There's, there's no uh, brilliant insight comes, no fire from heaven, nothing. All I'm saying here is that for many of us, myself included, our witness fails, and this isn't everybody, but many times I think our witness fails not because we spoke and we weren't empowered, but because we did not even speak in the first place. We were so uh, uh, unsure, we were so doubting that the Spirit truly would empower us, we didn't speak at all. Because we were afraid He wouldn't actually empower us if we started speaking. We are just like my daughter on that day on the monkey bars. Unwilling to, to let go of the platform and swing out because we weren't sure the Spirit was really going to empower us. So the point here is just simply that. In order to be a witness that's empowered, it has to first be given. And the promise here is it will be empowered if we're willing to step out and give it. One final takeaway for us here as we close this morning. Always keep in front of us. This reality, an empowered witness does not mean an obstacle-free witness. We're going to see that all through the book of Acts again and again. An empowered witness does not mean an obstacle-free one. And I know that seems counterintuitive because it's often the obstacles that make us fearful of wanting to give the witness. It's the things that shut us down. We see people are opposing us and we're like, maybe I should just shut up and not say anything. And yet we see, even as they're being opposed... We just saw verse 4, as they're being dragged away, 2,000 people, men, women, seeing their witness, hearing it, and and trusting Christ for the salvation. And even beyond that, think about it. If this Jesus that we're witnessing to, that we're seeking to be witnesses for, if even he was abused, hated, beaten, and then crucified, why would we think it's going to play out any differently for us? Jesus promised us, in fact, you will be persecuted if you're, if you're my disciples. You will be. And yet my prayer for each one of us here today is that just like Peter and John, we would have such an inspiring, captivating, just overwhelming picture of the love of God towards us in Jesus that like Peter says in verse 21, we wouldn't be able to help but speak about Jesus wouldn't be able to help it. It would just flow out of us in all these places that we would just be witnesses to all who would hear about the way that Jesus has transformed us, the life-transforming power in us. Because in the end, it's not about whether our witness is opposed or not. It's simply about being faithful to be God's witnesses in the lives of those that he's calling to himself. He's calling people to himself, and he will use your witness in order to reveal himself to them. And for those people who, who see and hear your witness and are transformed by it, it's going to make all the difference in the world. Just simply be faithful to give it. Trust him for the result.